Please open your Bibles with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. It's good to be back with you today. Um, Elaine and I were on vacation last week. I don't know if everyone knew this or not, but Sean was supposed to preach and he got the flu and uh, contacted me Friday and said he wasn't going to be able to make it. And thankfully, Brother Mark Batori um, was free and and uh, came and ministered for us. So I think a, some of you weren't here last week. And, um, and um, besides Elaine and me and some... Um, who were here last week aren't here this week. It's still people traveling. We've got quite a few people sick, as I mentioned in the prayer time. So, so keep folks in prayer. Um, and uh, Lord willing, maybe we'll all be here next week. Um, but glad that you're here. So we have been um, revisiting our church vision statement um, in this uh, short series. And as usual, it's a little longer than I expected it to be, but but we'll spend a few more weeks here, but let's just uh, look at our, our vision statement again. Um, I'll read it to you. The vision for Faith Baptist Church of Reedville is to be a church that is eternally and daily grounded in the gospel of Christ, seeking to genuinely worship God individually and corporately, sacrificially ministering to one another as a local community of believers and striving together to make more mature disciples of Jesus. And as I mentioned before, and just a little review here, that the four areas of the vision of our church are that we are a gospel-centered church, a God-worshipping church, a community-minded church, and a world-reaching church. So we took two weeks to look at this matter of being a gospel-centered church. And, and then before the holidays, uh, Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve uh, Sundays, we began looking at being a God-worshipping church. And really the focus of that message was on what true worship is. And we, we talked about the fact that it's not only Sunday mornings, but it's individual private worship as well as public worship. And this morning, our attention is going to be given to this relationship between private worship and public worship. Why are church worship services often not all that they're supposed to be? Why are they sometimes cold and dead? Or why are some worship services teeming with emotion but empty of any real truth or life-changing work? Why are some people always encouraged when they attend a worship service and others at the same service might as well not even have attended? Undoubtedly, there are many answers to these questions that would be answered only if you knew all of the circumstances, but I think it really comes down to two main things here, two main reasons as to why a worship service is like it is and how it, how it, is, um, how it actually in, um, results in worship or not. And the first one is, is the question of is, are those who are responsible for leading the worship service, are they themselves worshiping God in a way that leads others to true worship? Are, are they providing 
what needs to be provided for people to be able to come together and truly worship God. And the other question is, is have those who are attending the worship service, those who are the worshipers, those who have come to worship, are they prepared for corporate worship through private worship in their everyday lives? Now, Lord willing, next week we'll look at this matter of making sure that the, the worship service is um, what it should be from the perspective of those who are leading the worship and are they doing what they should be doing in order to provide for people to be able to come to truly worship the Lord. But today I want to examine this other factor affecting a corporate worship service. Are the worshipers who are in attendance prepared for corporate worship? But let's just, again, do a real quick review here of what worship is. What, what is worship? Well, we pointed this out a few weeks ago when we were looking at this, that the biblical words mean to bow down, to render honor, to pay homage. They, they signify humble adoration. They give the idea of giving something, bringing something to God. And so to worship is to ascribe to God the glory that is due him, to give him his worth. Worshiping God is stating and affirming his supreme value. What is God worth? Well, we know he's worth everything and beyond. But worship is to give God the glory he deserves. And, and there are so many verses and passages in the Bible that teach this, that, that it's God who is worthy of worship. He is the one who, who we all worship to. It is due God. Uh, just read this passage from First Chronicles 16, 28 through 31. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. It's the Lord and the Lord alone. The one true God, Yahweh, the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is the only one who is worthy and who is due worship. We spent some time in the New Testament and really which reveals to us, Jesus reveals to us what genuine worship is. It's not primarily an external activity. It's not going to a, a service and, and participating. That does somebody can go to a service and participate and not be worshiping. It's not the form of the worship that's important. It really comes down to the state of the heart of the worshipers. And Jesus said this when he spoke to the, the woman at the well. When he said God is looking for those who will worship him. How? In spirit and in truth. Speaking of in spirit, speaking, him, speaking of, of, of not some empty form of, of worship, but rather com, coming out of a heart of gratitude and, and praise to the Lord. It's not just going through the emotions um, or the motions of external worship. It's not just attending a service 
It's not just singing or, or giving an offering or praying. That, that's not enough. No, genuine worship must come from the heart, from the individual's spirit. And he also said it must be worship that's in truth. Well, in John 17, 17, Jesus clearly says in his prayer to the Father, he says, your word is truth. If we're worshiping God in truth, then we're worshiping him, worshiping him according to the truth of the word of God. We're, our scripture is going to be, excuse me, our worship is going to be scriptural. It's going to be according to, to the word. But again, we, we tend to think of worship as the time we gather together on Sunday morning as a local church. And that should be worship, right? Corporate worship. That's, that's what we're doing this morning. It's the worship of the unified body of Christ. But here's, here's what I want us to see today and, and, and see it very clearly, as clearly as possible, that corporate worship is impossible if private worship is non-existent. If private worship is lacking in the lives of individual members of a congregation during the week, then public corporate worship is going to suffer on Sundays. Because corporate worship is the coming together of individual members of the body of Christ to worship God together. And if one doesn't honor God during the week by giving him the praise and glory that's due him, by giving him the priority, by taking in his word, by communicating with him and communing with him in prayer, then he can't just come to the church worship service on Sunday morning after a whole week of neglecting God and flip the switch and say, okay, time to worship. We mentioned there in that previous message that in Romans 1 through 11, Paul spends goes to great lengths to, to explain the grace of God that provides salvation for a wicked, rebellious people. And then Paul draws the conclusion to those first 11 chapters. And in the 12th chapter, in the first two verses, he, he begins his con conclusion by saying this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. I appeal to you based upon these first 11 chapters that I just wrote. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, so genuine, acceptable Worship begins by recognizing what God has done for you. He has delivered you from your sin. He has delivered you from the penalty of sin. He has given you eternal life. He, he has blessed you so much. He, he has brought you out of the house of slavery. He's brought you out of darkness into light. So proper spiritual worship involves the offering of our entire beings to God as a sacrifice. That's what Paul says here in Romans 12. That means that we don't conform to the world. 
That means that we reject the values and the ways of the world and we're renewed in our minds by the word of God so that our thoughts and our words and our actions are pleasing and acceptable to him. And that's what needs to be going on in our own individual lives, in our families, every week, every day. That's what worship is. That, that's what genuine worship is. And we need to be worshiping God in private if we ever have any hope to worship God publicly. We need to be confessing our sins to God privately, repenting of known sin immediately if we are to worship God as he desires us to. So the question that I, I want to pose and, and address today is, how does our private worship affect our corporate worship? Well, here in Hebrews chapter 10, let's read verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How does our private worship affect our corporate worship? Well, I think as we look at this passage specifically um, in verses 22 through 25, we, we can see believers who have a, a, a positive effect on corporate worship. The believer who has been worshiping God all week by offering his life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, by denying himself, taking up his cross daily and following Christ, that believer is ready to worship God with other believers on Sunday. And, and you just go down through this passage and, and you see that the, these people, these believers, they, they approach God with a true heart. In other words, not, not an empty profession. It says they draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Th this is what all believers should be able to do. To approach God with this true heart, not, not just some empty profession, but, but they, they draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. They, they truly believe. They, they know God. They, they know him through Christ and they're, they're able to approach him. Um, they have confessed their sin and, and they're walking in fellowship with Christ. He speaks of with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There, there's an ongoing walk with the Lord of a confession of sin and, and a cleansing, walking in, in obedience and in fellowship with Christ. They have a confident expectation of the Lord's faithfulness to his promises. The writer says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. 
In other words, the, the Christian who is, is worshiping God throughout, throughout the week, what he is, he, he has this hope, this, this confident expectation that the Lord is faithful, that he can trust the Lord. They have also prayerfully considered how they might work with God to do the same for others at the corporate worship service. Look at this. He says, let us consider how. Let us consider how to do something. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So, so they're worshiping the Lord. They, they've got this, this focus on the Lord throughout the week in their private individual lives and in their families. And, and as, as they're preparing for this first day of the week gathering of the Lord's people, they, they, are, they are considering, they are thinking about how can I go to church on Sunday to the public worship service, the fellowship of the saints, and plan to stir up others to love and good works. It's not, they're not, they're not saying, man, what, what can I get out of, what can I get out of the service on Sunday? Hopefully they're going to get a lot. And, and if they've been worshiping the Lord all week and they, and they go with this kind of attitude toward gathering together with God's people, they are going to receive great blessing as long as the church is doing what it's supposed to do. But they're not going to church saying, man, I hope they sing my favorite songs today. They're not going to church saying, well, I, I, I hope that, you know, this happens, or I, I hope I'm really picked up today. That they're, they're focused, the, these believers who are going to have a positive effect on public worship are, are, look, are thinking about others. What can I do to stir up others to love and good works? Their focus isn't on themselves and, and, and what they want to get out of the service. And believe me, folks, this is not this is not popular preaching these days. But this is what the scripture says. Here's something else. Talk about unpopular preaching. They make their plans not to allow the things of this world to keep them from corporate worship. They make their plans to not allow the things of this world to keep them from corporate worship. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. I, I like that the book that Elaine and I gave you for Christmas. I don't know if any of you have had time to look at it or not. But in the introduction, um, Paul Tripp, he writes about being brought up. And uh, he, he says he's he's very very thankful because every week every sunday morning they went to church it wasn't a question it wasn't okay can we schedule church this week they went to church it was just a habit now he said you know his parents could have done a better job in certain areas like focusing them spiritually but he's thankful for that habit and, and you know those who are are worshiping the lord during the week walking with the lord seeking to honor him with their lives and in doing all of these things mentioned in these verses here in Hebrews 10, then um, they're, gonna, they're going to make their plans 
to be there on Sunday. Granted, things you know happen, and you know they everyone's not there every week. Um, but but that's what they're doing. They're not neglecting to meet together, and some do, and some were doing this in the first century. Some were not in the habit of meeting together, and the writer is is saying that's that's not how it should be. You see, they they look forward to meeting together with his people on his day to encourage them. Not neglecting to meet together, encouraging one another. Encouraging one another. Um, You know, all of us need encouragement. We do. God never meant for us to, to go through the Christian life by ourselves. We need one another. The church needs one another. All of us do. And, and coming together, you know, in, in Sunday mornings isn't the only time we should come together, but, 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 but this is something that, that is important. It's, we should look forward to come together to be an encouragement to our brothers and sisters. Do you know even just your presence here is, is an encouragement to other believers? Um, someone said to me this morning in the greeting time, where is everybody? I'm like, well, some are sick, some are traveling, some are working. Um, obviously, if you've got a church our size, you're, you're going to miss people more than if you're in a church of a couple thousand people. But, but it, we're here to encourage one another. That's, that's what we should be doing. Here's something else about believers who, who really contribute positively to um, corporate worship is, is they've been living all week with the eye of faith knowing that Jesus will return. It says, even more as you see the day drawing near. Um, man, you know, you, you just look around, the world's falling apart. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it always has been, I understand that, but, but Jesus is coming again. He is coming again. And, um, you know, we, we need to look with the eye of faith throughout the week as we worship the Lord privately. You know, that, that's something, you know, th- these people that we meet together with on Sunday, those who are truly converted, um, we're, we're going to spend eternity with them. We're, we're gonna, and, and we're not going to have the quirks that we have now, right? We're not going to be able to be a thorn in the flesh anymore to anybody. You know, the Lord's going to sanctify us completely. He's going to glorify us. But, but here's, the, here's the bottom line, really. They have made corporate worship a priority because, public, because private worship has been a priority. They make their plans to attend corporate worship because they have a desire to worship with God's people, not because they're pressured to do so. If you're a child, you might be dragged off the church against your will. And anybody ever was a child that's dragged off the church against their will? Anybody besides me? Bill and I, Michael, three of us. The rest of you? Okay, you're good kids. Or else you didn't go to church, right? Um, You know, attending a public worship service at the local church should should not be because of any kind of pressure. Now, now, if you're pressured, 
and that's the only reason you go, I guess that's better than not going at all. And at least you'll hear the word and the spirit can use the word to get a hold of your heart. But it should be a joy. It's, I hate to keep referring to the gift I gave you, but Tripp trip says it's, it's a gift. He said it's a gift. I never heard it described that way. That the gathering together of God's people on Sunday morning is a great gift that God has given to his people. And, and that's how we should look at, at coming together. And that's how those who are worshiping the Lord throughout the week do look at that Sunday worship service. It's like David said, right? I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And that's the positive side. That's what Sunday worship looks like to the one who's been worshiping all week and has a proper understanding of what private and corporate worship is all about. That's how it should look. This, This private worship going on throughout the week which anticipates the public worship, which looks forward to it, and which looks at it as an opportunity to be a blessing and encouragement to other believers. That's the positive side. But but then there's a a negative side as well. Um, What about the one who doesn't worship God privately throughout the week? It's a totally different story. Look with me over at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And, and you know, most of you know the context here. In 1 Corinthians 5, of, of course, there's a terrible situation in the church. Um, a man in the church has, is in committing um, just outright immorality. He's taken his father's wife to be his own. And Paul is addressing this issue. Um, but look at verses 6 through 8 here. After Paul um, addresses this issue in the first five verses, he, he says in verse 6, because these people were actually boasting about this sin, that the church was boasting about the sin of this man. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul warns the Corinthian church here regarding their condoning of sin in the church. And there's a few things that we can really draw out of here as far as the public worship of the local body of Christ. Um, What kind of believers have a negative effect on corporate worship? And understanding that perhaps some of these some of these people who profess to believers to profess to be believers, perhaps they don't truly know the Lord. Perhaps they have that empty profession. Perhaps they're not drawing near unto God with a with a pure heart. That's always a possibility. But but first of all, there are those who refuse to deal with their own sin. They refuse to deal with their own sin. And, and, and then also, um, not only that, but the church itself may refuse to cleanse itself of sin. 
Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. It's because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, there's no room for sin in the church. Get get rid of the sin. Uh, Live the lives that you have in Christ. There's, There's no room for ongoing sin in the church. A local church must must purge the evil that is among them in order to have a pure church that God can use for his glory. Um, John MacArthur in his book, The Ultimate Worship, writes, Worship does not occur in a vacuum. As believers, we are responsible to the rest of the church to maintain a consistent lifestyle of genuine, acceptable worship. Our failure to do so will adversely affect the rest of the body of Christ. You see, sin that's not repented of, sin that's not confessed to God, is infectious. It really is. It's infectious, like a disease. I bring up a couple of biblical examples of this. Um, In the Old Testament, we have the story of Achan, right? Here, here's Israel. They're finally going into the promised land. And God gives them clear instruction. Don't, don't take anything for yourself. This is all devoted to me. And, and Achan disobeys God. He takes a Babylonian garment and some other things and he hides them. And, and God brings judgment, Right? God destroys Achan, he destroys his family, and he he dealt with Achan's sin in the presence of the whole assembly of Israel. Now, Achan deserved that judgment, right? But Achan wasn't the only one who suffered. How did did Joshua find out that that there was a problem? Well, it's because they went up to battle and they were defeated, right? And, and, and men died. Men died as a result of Achan's sin. And the, and the families of those men suffered because of Achan's sin. And Achan's whole family was destroyed because of Achan's sin. This was a very trying time for God's people. Well, you, you come to the New Testament, right? And you've got Ananias and Sapphira. And God's blessing the church, and the church is really going well, and people are being saved, and, and, and then you know, people are donating their, their land and selling it and giving to the needy in the, in the church, that, you know, the needs that they had there to meet those needs. And Ananias and Sapphira come up with this plan, hey, let's sell our land for thus and such, and, and we'll, we'll give this much to, to the church, and we'll tell the church that we gave it all. They lied. And when Peter confronts him, he says, you've not lied to men, you've lied to God. You, you've lied to the Holy Spirit of God. They were pretending to be something they were not, and God dealt with their sin in view of the whole church. And Luke records in Acts 5.11 that the result was that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. You see, stealing from God, like Achan did, lying to God, like Ananias and Sapphira did, 
um, resulted in the death of these professing believers and a purifying of the people of God. Now, now thank God that he doesn't always deal with sin that way, right? Most of us would be dead, probably. God is merciful. And, and these, were, these, were, these were specific, special situations, you know, that, that uh, were going on at the founding of, of the nation of Israel and in the founding of the church. But we, we might consider these sins, you know, stealing from God and lying to God. We might consider them to be outrageous. And, and there are sins that we think are outrageous, right? I mean, you, you hear of murder, you know, adultery, child abuse, and these things. And we think, but this is just, this is terrible. You know, these, these just blatant, outright sins against other people. Um, and we would think, well, if, if there's a sexual predator hiding out in the local church, you know, we, we could see how, why God might, you know, um, withhold some of his blessing on that church or, or, or you know, it might be a, a hindrance to their worship. But often the hindrance to corporate worship come not because of just these out, you know, outrageous sins, but but because of sins that are much more common and unfortunately much more accepted in the church. Because let's, let's go back to Achan, okay? And let's go back to Ananias and Sapphira. It, we need to understand that, that these sins of action that were committed by these people who were among God's people were rooted in sinful thoughts. Sinful thoughts that, that were in the heart so, so Achan was consumed with selfish greed, right? He was consumed with selfish greed. He knew what God had commanded. And yet he, he took no thought of the danger he was putting his family or other people in, in Israel in. And Ananias and Sapphira, they, they were filled with pride. Loving the praise of men rather than the, the commendation of God. And so, the, it, as with all sin, the, the sins, the actions of the sin, they say started in the heart. And condoning sin can manifest itself in, in less obvious forms than what we see here in Achan's life in, in Ananias and Sapphira. In 1 Corinthians 5, 8 here, Paul tells us, that our Christianity is to be without malice and evil. We are to be worshiping God with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Our worship, our lives, our church is to be holy. It's to be sincere and according to truth. And we understand that, that wickedness and evil may take many different forms. It's not simply Stealing or lying or sexual perversion or, or other obvious areas. In fact, neglecting the admonitions of, of Hebrews 10 that we looked at a few moments ago, that neglecting those admonitions is sin. There are sins of omission, right? Things that we don't do that we should do. 
And a failure to worship the Lord and walk with him throughout the week is sin. It is sin. Professing Christians who say they know Christ and live lives of thievery and deceit by denying Christ, by their lack of devotion to him, and by taking from God what is his, they, they are sinning against God. They are sinning against God's people. And their presence in the corporate worship service dampens the corporate worship of the church. I don't, do we understand this? Let, let's, just, let's just look back there at Hebrews 10 again, and you, you'll see, see, I think, how this works. If someone is not worshiping in spirit throughout the week, if his heart and mind is not focused on the Lord, not accustomed to communing with God, then what, what effect can that have when he comes to the local church to worship on Sunday morning? Well, he's going to be cold-hearted. His mind is not going to be focused on God. He hasn't been communing with God. Think about this. He, he, he's not conditioned by truth throughout the week. Here, here, here's a Christian, and he's, he's spent no time in the scriptures. He, he takes no, no thought of Jesus' words. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He takes no thought of that. He eats his three meals a day. But, but he's neglecting the spiritual food that he needs. Jesus compared it to something we do daily. We eat our bread. We eat our food. And Jesus said, you know, you don't just live by eating physical food every day. You, you need spiritual food. And here's someone whose mind and heart and life has not been conditioned by truth throughout the week. He's been bombarded with temptations and, and evil thoughts. Immersed in the world that opposes God. And all that week, there's, there's little or no input from the truth from the word of God. It's like he's going to go Sunday morning and he's going to have this feast of the word of God. And it's going to last them all week. What if you just went out to eat at a really nice restaurant once a week? You think you'd get enough nutrition to last you the whole week? Say, yeah, next week I'm going to this really nice restaurant again. And I'm going to eat a really nice meal, really big, nutritious. And it's going to suffice for the whole week. I mean, is that stretching what Jesus said? I don't think so. I don't think so. So, people who neglect their spiritual life throughout the world, weak Christians, they're not prepared to worship corporately. They don't come in prepared to worship corporately. And it has a negative effect on the, uh, on the worship service. They've not been worshiping the Lord in their private lives, and therefore they've not confessed their sins to God. And if there is unconfessed and unrepented of sin in their lives, then eventually it will infect others in the church. 
D.A. Carson, in his book, Worship by the Book, writes this. He says, hindrances to excellent corporate worship are of various sorts. Corporate worship may be stultified, maybe not a word you use every day, suppressed, smothered, it means. Corporate worship may be stultified by church members who never pray at home, who come to church waiting to be entertained, who are inwardly marking a scorecard instead of participating in worship, who love mere tradition or mere innovation more than truth, who are so busy that their minds are cluttered with the press of the urgent, who are nurturing secret bitterness and resentments in the dark recesses of their minds. Um, this is, this is the point of the message here this morning. Yeah, if you neglect God throughout the week, if you're not worshiping him privately, you're hurting yourself, obviously. And it's not pleasing to God, and it, and, it, and it really is a revelation of where your heart is with God if you don't have time for God during the week. But in addition to that, you're also having a negative effect on the worship service. You see, we, we all have a responsibility to worship the Lord throughout the week in a personal way. We all have that responsibility. We should be continually confessing our sins and repenting of known sin, seeking to honor the Lord by, by making a complete sacrifice of our lives to Him, as Paul says in Romans 12. But we also have a responsibility to one another to admonish and encourage one another. And we admonish and encourage one another to, to forsake sin and to walk with God. You see, it's one thing to take care of yourself spiritually. And many times, many times we fail at that, right? Many times we don't do well there. You, you may be thinking this morning... Wow, you know, yeah, I really need to improve on my, my individual personal worship throughout the week. And we, obviously we, we all could improve in that. None of us have arrived. But it's one thing to take care of yourself spiritually, but it's quite another to take part in the spiritual care of another Christian. And yet this is what God has called us to do. Each of us has a Christian duty to God and to his church to help others in their spiritual lives. And especially if we know a Christian brother or sister, if we know they're living in unconfessed, unrepentant sin, then we need to go to him or to her and urge them to confess that sin and to repent of it. And to get right, for, right with God for their own sake and for the church's sake. In Romans 15, 14, Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. That word means to admonish or to counsel one another. In other words, Paul says, he says, I... I I'm convinced, I know you as believers in Christ, you have the ability to, to help one another spiritually, is what he's saying. And of course, we looked at this in, in our study of the elders 
First um, Timothy 5.20, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that they may, the rest may stand in fear. That's specifically about an elder, but it goes for all of us. We should be helping one another spiritually. We should be ministering to one another, helping us to, to get victory over sin. Obviously, it's the work of the Spirit and the life and it's the Word of God. I understand all that, but God uses His people to help one another. Well, how do we do this? Well, we do it with much prayer, with compassion, and, and with genuine concern. It's hard work. And obviously, the, the scriptures do not teach us that, that we, we live in a police state, right? We're not policing one another. Uh, there are churches like that, right? No thanks. It, it, it's not like we're looking around, okay, what's this guy? What can I find that someone's doing so I can go rebuke them and, and, and get, them, get them straightened out like me? No, obviously, that's not the spirit. Of God, that's not the spirit of the scriptures. No, and the truth of the matter is, we we all have different preferences that we live by. You may call them convictions. You call them what you want. If it's not scripture, in my mind, they're preferences. You may not like my music. I may not like your associations. You know, there there are there are. There are differences, right? We, we've got to be gracious to one another. We've got to be hard on ourselves and, and, and gracious toward others, to quote Mark Menick. We're, talking, we're not talking here about, about doubtful disputations, right? You don't go rebuke your brother just because he, he doesn't agree with you on something. No, we're talking about sin. But we're not even talking about every time a person sins, right? We'd be, that's all we'd be doing. No, what are we talking about here? Well, we should all be growing spiritually, but, but persistent sin in the life of a believer needs to be lovingly addressed by another believer. It needs to be addressed by the believer who has taken enough care to take the beam out of his own eye, right? So he can go take, take that sliver out of his brother's eye. It needs to be the type of believer that Paul talks about in Galatians 6 1, one who is spiritual, should restore those who are fallen. So it falls upon us as believers to be that spiritually minded Christian who is able to be used of God to go and help a brother or sister who is struggling with sin and who needs help. And it's not only the work of the pastors and elders. It's the work of the spiritually minded Christian. And the addressing of a sinning brother or sister needs to take place, again, not only for the sake of that individual, but also for the sake of the body. And like I said, that's hard work. It's hard work. It really is. And it's a neglected work. Because what happens is we end up valuing relationships with other people more than we value that person's relationship with God. We end up valuing other people and our relationships with them more than we value the spiritual health of the, of the local church. 
And we're looking this morning at the relationship between individual private worship and corporate worship and the fact that each of us as believers has on each of us has on corporate worship but our relationship with God throughout the week not only affects our corporate worship it also affects our fellowship with other believers and it affects our outreach to the lost which is really two separate messages which I have no intention to preach any time in the near future But that's the bottom line. How we live through the week, how we walk with God or don't walk with God is going to affect our whole Christian life. Because it is our Christian life. And it all goes back to the gospel. Are are you living a gospel-centered life? Have Have you believed the gospel? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Are you allowing the gospel to control the way you live in your everyday life. Because if you believe the gospel for salvation, and if you're allowing the gospel to control the way you live, if those things are happening, then you will come to to the Lord's house. We can put it in those terms. It's not really the Lord's house, but you will come to, to the gathering of God's people, and you will be ready to worship God with his people. And it's only the gospel that enables us to be able to, to worship in spirit and in, in truth. We can approach God because we know Jesus Christ, because he is the only way to God. And our faith in and obedience to the gospel empowers us to worship God privately and corporately. So that's, that's always the first thing, right? You believe the gospel. Understand you're a sinner who deserves to be judged by God, deserves eternal damnation, but that Jesus paid the price for your sins, that he came and he lived his life in perfect obedience to the Father, that he died on the cross, was buried and rose again the third day, and that all who will put their trust in him will have their sins forgiven and have eternal life. And and that's the beginning of the Christian life. And if you've never trusted Christ, then that, that gospel is for you and for your salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And if you've not believed, then the, the invitation there is for you to believe the gospel and receive Christ as your Savior. But it's also living the gospel. We're a new creation in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. And we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. You can say no to sin. And you can say yes to righteousness by his grace through the power of his spirit. You can offer your life up as a living sacrifice to God. And by the power of Christ, you can worship God privately according to the gospel. So you can worship him corporately according to the gospel. Because it's the cross of Jesus Christ that leads to worship. The vision for our church is that we might be a God-worshipping church that gathers together on the first day of the week to worship together following a week when we have been privately worshiping the Lord by the holy and acceptable sacrifice of our own lives made acceptable by the precious blood of Christ 
It does matter what you do during the week. It does matter how you live. One last quote from MacArthur from his book there, The Ultimate Priority. He says, When the redeemed assemble with hearts overflowing with praise, cultivated through lifestyles of pure, acceptable worship, together the congregation is mutually stimulated to worship God. There should be bursting out a boiling over of true praise and heartfelt worship because what has been enjoyed individually is expressed then enriched and enhanced when brought into the joy of the assembly. Your private worship has a great effect on public worship. You see, uh, a gospel-centered life leads to a God-worshiping life. And a gospel-centered church leads to a God-worshiping church. And it has to be in that order. It starts with the gospel. May God help all of us to mature, to grow. I mean, that's, that's life, right? We, we grow spiritually. The more centered our life is on the gospel, then the more pure our worship will be, both as individuals and as a church. And may God give us the growth in these areas that we need. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us the gospel, Lord, and providing a way for us to be able to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us as individuals, help us as a church, Lord, to, to really mature in this area, to allow the gospel to really be the center of our lives and guiding us. And, Lord, that it would lead us to being true worshipers of you and truly a, a church that worships you, the one true God, in a way that, that honors you. Lord, may you use your word in our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.